0: This is Paul Winfrey with Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. In celebration of Thanksgiving, and as a token of our appreciation for how thankful we are for all of our listeners, we're going to be reposting three of our favorite episodes this week. We hope you have a wonderful holiday, safe travels, and happy listening.
1: I should like to tell you that I have seen some of the experiments shown in this film actually carried out. At the All-Russian Physiological Congress. As you can imagine, technique is everything.
0: This is Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. I'm Paul Winfrey. And I'm Jack Spencer. Before we get into episode one of the
2: podcast, Jack and I want to talk a little bit about what we're looking to do with the podcast. You know, Paul, there are all these really key economics issues that are driving the policy debate today. Unfortunately, it seems like most often they're driven by platitudes and punditry. I'd like to bring some focus and analysis to the issues.
0: The podcast will primarily focus around economic freedom and public policy. However, any topic's fair game. And on that note, we're also looking to bring a little bit of fun to the podcast. But before we go any further, let's kick it off to our interview with Google's Hal Varian. We have Hal Varian here this morning, who's the chief economist at Google. Thanks for being here, Hal. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, let's get this kicked off. Um, first question of the day is uh, a big one. Uh, what's work going to look like in 50 or 100 years from now?
1: Uh, well, at least I had nobody be around to check whether I'm right <laughs> or not. But uh, let's, uh, let's look 100 years ago, or maybe 200 years ago. We had a 70-hour work week. And now we've got a 38.5-hour work week. So I think I can predict pretty confidently we'll have a shorter work week 100 years from now. Even now, my grandfather wouldn't recognize what I do as work. He was a farmer. Now, being a farmer, that's work. But doing what I do, hmm, I don't know. We do a lot of talking, a lot of convening, a lot of brainstorming, a lot of analytics. But uh, it's different quite different from the kind of work people did uh, did a century ago. And I think a century, for now, we'll see a different kind of work as well.
2: For the record, I'm not sure that I would consider what we do. as work.
0: <laughs> um, Or maybe even the listeners <laughs> right, would
2: think that. Right. <laughs>
0: That's one of, my, one of my jokes is I have no idea how I would explain this job to my grandfather. Right. Exactly. You sit in a climate-controlled office <laughs> right. and, and think about things all day long. Yeah, yeah he, he would most definitely not consider this to be work. Well, you know, one of the things that 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 folks uh, c- continually bring up, and where there's um, you know some general anxiety about, is technological uh, technological unemployment. We, you know, we've seen this. This isn't just a recent phenomenon. This has come up time and time again throughout history. Uh, is this time any different, or will old work be replaced by new work moving forward?
1: Well, I think it's quite clear that old work would be replaced by new work or at least new ways of uh, making a livelihood. One thing that's pretty important about understanding what's going on now is we have two big economic effects. One is the demand curve for labor shifting to the left because of substitution from automated systems. But the other is a supply curve of labor shifting to the left because of the aging population. So right now we see... Uh, many developed countries exp- growing older very, very rapidly. So look at uh, Germany, look at uh, look at Switzerland, look at Italy, France, Spain, and so on. Or go to the East: Korea, Taiwan, China. China is in a big mess because of the one-child policy, where they're seeing their po- their labor force decline quite mm-hmm. dramatically. So I think it's a good thing that we're seeing ways to economize on labor coming now since we're entering a period of really tight labor markets for the next thirty years.
2: When you look at the future, you know one of the one of the challenges we have in policy space is you see emerging two general perspectives. I think one is more pessimistic. You look at technology, immigration, trade, they come with fear and pessimism about the future and, and the the policy push in that regard is to limit those things, to protect society from them. Then there's this other perspective, one that, frankly, I share, that is more optimistic. It's more trade, uh, technology, um, even in, and immigration um, leads to more opportunity and a brighter future. And I'm curious, sort of, what's your perspective on that? When you look at the future and, and these key issue areas, sh- should we be fearful, um, or is there opportunity, or is it both?
1: So I think during the 20th century, we had really two very dramatic events that occurred uh, with respect to labor markets. One was baby boomers coming on the labor market. Remember, baby boomers from 1946 to 1964, they kind of hit the market in the late 60s and and uh, early 70s. And at the same time, you saw women coming onto the labor market in large numbers. And so this made for a very robust economy because you had all these new workers and you had all this increase in uh, productivity. But a consequence of that was it was always pretty easy to find workers if you needed it. So there was kind of Fair, you know, a small amount of capital chasing a lot of labor. Well, going forward, it's exactly the reverse because those events are not going to occur again. We're seeing all the baby boomers retiring, and women's participation in the labor market has asymptoted. So what that means is there's going to be a scarcity of labor going into the future, at least in the developed countries. Now, look at Africa. Look at India. They're still getting younger, but the rest of the world is getting older.
0: And technology is going to help fill that role.
1: Absolutely. We have to have increased productivity if we want to maintain the same standard of living that we're used to, same standard of living growth.
0: So there's been a tremendous amount of economic growth that's occurred over the last uh, 300 years. And there are three basic arguments for, um, for, for for what was going on that was essentially driving that growth. The first argument is that of uh, Greg Clark, who says that it was uh, primarily materialism and, and, uh, and, and in essence, materialism of the wealthy that was driving growth, uh, first from Britain and then elsewhere. The second argument is that of Deidre McCloskey, who says that it was changing ideology, uh, or what she calls egalitarian liberalism, where merchants and their employers uh, felt more free over time to pursue their own self-interests. And then the the third explanation for what was going on is that of Joel Mokier, who says, and I quote, that there was a changing attitude towards the nature and willingness and ability to harness uh, that growth and uh, uh, pursue it towards uh, the the human material want or need. Uh, So everybody seems to be saying to me the same thing, and that is is that attitudes and culture are what matters. Uh, What do you think is going on here, and have things changed over time?
1: Well, I think uh, all of those authors have a picture of the elephant. They're all looking at different uh, components. They all have some merit. I have My own prejudice, I think, is to look at uh, Joel's work, but a, a point you didn't mention, and that is the role of uh, technology, science, and engineering. And uh, what uh, Joel argues is that we saw this burst of creating ac- creative activity, the Industrial Revolution, mm-hmm. And uh, we got into this very useful (laughs) feedback group where engineering came up with the questions which science answered, which rolled back into the engineering to build new devices. And we had a systematic exploration of technology that really had not been available before. There were scientists, Galileo and so on, who observed and speculated, took careful notes. There were engineers who built things, but getting in this loop where you have engineering feeding the science and science feeding the engineering, that was something that was really unique to the Industrial Revolution. I'll give you uh, an example of that. The engineers would build a model steam engine as a little model, a desktop kind of model. Worked great. Worked fantastic. They'd scale it up to a full-size machine. It wouldn't work because they did not recognize at the time that the volume goes up as the cube. And so doubling the size is really quadrupling the volume. And uh, came Boyle comes along with Boyle's law and now we understand how this works and now you could make further innovation. So I think that's an interaction of science and engineering uh, starting with the Industrial Revolution that really had a very profound effect on our culture.
2: One of the issues we're dealing with in economic policy is trying to determine you know, there's this there's this back and forth that goes between sort of fr- Bias towards free enterprise and bias towards a managed economy. And one of the places that's really playing out right now is vis-a-vis China. Um, some folks look at China and see this growth. They see, again, fear of, of them overtaking us, um, so to speak. And um, my, my personal view is that free enterprise will win over time. Um, but is there something that's changed in, in culture and technology that... Maybe I'm wrong that that maybe we need some management from government to 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 maximize um, our potential to, to to have the best outcomes. I'm curious given all of, you know cultural changes technology changes what China is doing is a managed economy the best way to go or is good old fashioned free enterprise going to win the day
1: well I think that Chinese story of how Chinese developed from one of the poorest countries on earth to now an extraordinarily rich country with a huge amount of dinosaurs. And that really rests on the fact that they freed up these forces of entrepreneurship. Where they showed up first was, of course, in their collective farms where they said, well, we're going to reduce the size of the collective, increase the size of the, of the individual lots. And you saw a huge boost in terms of productivity just by changing that Incentives, so it's quite clear that the growth of China is not really due to expert uh, management in terms of the state. It's due to the entrepreneurial forces of the of the Chinese uh, workers and uh, and uh, owners. So that's been, I think, pretty firmly established that you have to have incentives for people to encourage them to work and better their lives.
2: So, how then do we respond to this um, narrative that we see emerging? Um, vis-a-vis China again, where people say, you know, on the technology front, China's doing all these great things in AI and in and, and computing or, or whatever, um, manufacturing, and that in order for us to keep up with that, we just need to manage a little bit here. We need to regulate a little bit there. Um, it's working for the Chinese. Maybe that's what we need to do. Is there any value or is there... What do you think of that? Yeah, so
1: so let's go back to my point I made earlier about demography. The Chinese, because they're going to see the shrinking labor force over the next 20 years. And by the way, no matter how productive you are, it still takes 20 years to produce a 20-year-old. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be in this demographic situation for many You know, this years. may be famous last words. <laughs> <laughs> maybe anyway the uh, the point is they're going to they're facing this declining labor force of course they're investing in robotics and uh, AI and uh, in the us uh, we're also seeing a lot of this investment but it tends to be more driven by the private sector because mm-hmm. the government I must say has a difficult time projecting ahead further than four years here uh, and sometimes not even that uh, so we we do see uh, similar activities and It's also the case that we've had some government-driven investment in science and technology, things like the autonomous car program from DARPA, the Internet, uh, the digital library project, and several other projects which were very forward-looking and I think have had great uh, benefits for society as a whole. So I don't think the government uh, investment should go all the way down to zero. Absolutely not. But I think the government uh, investment should be... uh, focused on uh, projects that are going to be valuable uh, in the future, and maybe they a little need a little bit of nudge to get going, but ultimately the fruits of those projects are going to show up in the private sector, in my view.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the interesting things in that space is um, where we've had the most success with government investments leading to commercial success is not when the government sets out to achieve some commercial outcome it almost always fails what the government does well and to put it crudely is um when the government needs to kill people and break things um those investments tend to work out okay and then when we have the avenues for those investments to spin off into commercial opportunity commercial endeavors when the private sector sees um, an opportunity to do so so those things you mentioned uh the internet um, GPS falls into that category, any number of other ones. Um, so sometimes I think we need to be careful when we talk about government investments in drawing that distinction. Um, we see that in energy space. We see it in a lot of spaces. when government gets involved in commercialization, it just it distorts the whole system and ends in failure.
1: I think that's right, and I think the uh, many people in the government, let's say in the National Science Foundation and DARPA, recognize this, that they can do some of the pioneering work. But ultimately, that, if that's going to disseminate uh, widely in society, that has to be taken over by the private sector. Uh, I was mentioning Joel Moker a few minutes ago. Whose uh, book was called "Gifts of Athena," talking about the benefits of science and engineering. Well, there's also a book called "Gifts of Mars," which is exactly what you're describing. That a lot of innovation historically has come out of uh, military uh, military investment. Uh, if you look at the uh, my industry, as Google search industry. There's been projects like TREC, which was a text retrieval and extraction conference, which improved the knowledge and uh, accuracy of information retrieval that was apparently, I mean, nobody's quite certain of this, but it was funded by agencies who processed a lot of information, often for military or political reasons. Uh, the National Science Foundation, the Internet, we already mentioned, there was another project in the 90s, called Digital Libraries, and that produced three search engines, the Digital Library Project. One was uh, to at Berkeley, another was Lycos at Carnegie Mellon, and the third one was Google at Stanford. So, of course, the government funded the basic research, but all of these uh spin-offs were managed by the private sector as they as they should be. And I think people recognize
0: that in these agencies quite clearly. Mm-hmm. But there does seem to be something that's changing over time. Uh, I mean, you you, met, you mentioned it just a few minutes ago. Within regards to it's difficult for the United States government to plan out into the future. Uh, we I mean we're we're in the midst or Congress is in the midst of a, a fight on the on the funding bill to fund. Well, there's there's seven outstanding bills that they're that they're still dealing with uh, that cover some almost a million uh, members of the federal workforce. Uh, including many of the research agencies, including uh, uh, National Science Foundation, NASA. Um, and, um, you know, and, and we just came out of a long, you know, the, the, the longest shutdown in, in history uh, where, you know, NASA, for instance, was essentially closed for 35 days. And it's becoming increasingly difficult for them to do a couple of things. One, to plan funding out over the future, uh, and uh, and two to also plan workforce needs, right? So, uh, both their current workforce needs and their and, and uh, their future workforce needs, because they're receiving uh, different information from different from different entities, right? So, they're receiving directive from the president uh, and and basically the hierarchy within the administration, and they're also receiving uh, information on what to do from, from Congress, and, and oftentimes that's that that, that that's, that's competing. Uh, for instance, in the last administration, Congress and the president had were giving different directives to NASA within with regards to the uh, to, to the S, to the SLS program or the heavy lift rockets uh, made down and made down in Alabama. How's that ultimately changing how government procurement drives innovation? Both again from both a workforce perspective and then also from a from a funding perspective.
1: Well, sometimes there's. Uh... Something of an agreement. You can hear one branch of government saying, send a rocket to the moon, and the other branch says, send a rocket to the moon, but build it in my district. Mm-hmm. So there's always going to be this... That's uh, horse trading. <laughs> yeah. Log rolling, horse right. trading, yes, exactly. And uh, that has to be accomplished in order to move forward in a, on, these, uh, on these projects. The trouble with democracy is that the people who aren't alive yet don't get a vote, so we're naturally tend to be more present biased than you'd really like to be. And the hope, of course, is that wise people can get together and recognize that they have to think further ahead. And, and uh, you, you've certainly seen this in, in American history time and time again. Right now, maybe the, that has not yet emerged, but we can still keep our fingers pro- crossed and hope for the future.
2: One issue that I wanted to get into before we wrap up is competition. Um, there's been a lot of talk about competition. Do companies like Google and Facebook and Amazon, um, is there any competition in a, in a market where, where they are dominant? Um, how should we be thinking about competition? Is the face of competition changing? Um, do these companies need broken up? I'm sort of, What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, if we look at, um, let's say, Search, the company that I'm most uh, associated with, you see that it's a tough business to be in because only 6% of what you produce makes money. And by that, I mean that only 6% of the clicks on a search engine are actually ad clicks, the ones that fund the operation, the other 94% are organic clicks, or clicks that have to do with non-commercial topics. When you look at the competition for those commercial clicks, it's intense. Everybody wants those commercial clicks. Amazon wants those clicks. Uh, uh, TripAdvisor wants those clicks. Yelp wants those clicks, and so on and so on and so on. Everybody that's in the business of helping people find products or services they want to buy is going after those searches and providing applications providing front ends providing plugins providing products all sorts of things that help drive that uh, that market so there the competition is really uh, quite intense and not only on the search side but also when you go across the large companies they compete intensely among themselves like take operating systems. Google has two operating systems, Android and Chrome. Microsoft has an operating system. Windows has an operating system. Uh, you've got a uh, autonomous vehicles. We have Uber investing heavily in autonomous vehicles, Lyft, Google, GM, Ford, all the auto companies. Uh, we look at, let's say, um, office applications. Well, there's Microsoft Office, there's Google Docs, there's Apple has a set of uh, applications and so on, so on, so on. The worst world from the viewpoint of antitrust would be where Amazon only sold books and Google only did search and Apple only made phones and Microsoft only made office applications, that kind of siloed world where there wasn't the cross-feature competition that we expect today. And it's that competition that's going on among the large firms, the large internet firms, the fact that gives us its low prices and incredibly rapid technological progress and continuous innovation. So competition is a good thing, and competition is there now
2: in that industry. At the end of the day, no matter how big and powerful Google or Amazon or anyone else is, None of them can take my money or make me buy their products. Only the government and regulation can do either of those two things. And so long as that freedom is in place, I think that competition will be alive and well, for what it's worth. So one of the things that's going on within within this competition is uh,
0: is 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 a, is, a, is a progress forward with um, on uh, on computer mediated innovation, right? How how has that changed? Uh, economic activity, and where's that going?
1: So it's interesting you use that term, because Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I uh, gave an honorary lecture at the American Economics Association called Computer-Mediated Transactions, okay? And the Computer-Mediated Transactions, the premise was, you now have a computer in the middle of most economic transactions, what does that enable? And one is the extraction of data and analysis. That's the big data that everybody's heard about. Personalization and customization, that's the second one. But the last two I don't think people fully appreciated, and that is continuous improvement via experimentation, number one, and contractual innovation, number two. So take the continuous innovation uh, component, all of these companies are constantly experimenting to improve their systems. If you go to Google at any time, you're probably in 40 different experiments. Okay? These are minor tweaks to the interface, maybe a possible change in the search engine ranking algorithm and so on, and we're continuously finding ways to make better products. Okay? So that's important, very important point there. And then the uh, second thing about contractual innovation, because you have the computer in the middle of the transaction, it can observe a lot of aspects of that transaction that are useful to successful performance. So let me give you a canonical example here. Uh, The old model of advertising said, I'll show this person an ad and they might come to your store. Pay me. The new version says, I'm going to show people this ad. You only have to pay me if they come to your store or your website. right? So that's a really much, much better deal. The merchant can verify. The person saw the ad, clicked on it, and went to the website. The uh, provider of the content can ver- verify that. So you get this contract that gives you much, much more efficient behavior than you had before because the technology being embedded in the transaction.
2: This leads to a question. I think we are under some obligation if we're gonna have a conversation about technology and the economy to mention blockchain and Bitcoin. (laughs) And um, that's really what that's all about. Often when people think about Bitcoin, they think about it being a currency, but it's not about it being a currency. It's about it giving, um, allowing for this financial transaction to occur that flows from what you were just saying. I'm curious, what do you think the impact of blockchain um, will be over time, especially this uh, computer-assisted transaction element that it provides folks with that that they wouldn't have had access to those resources prior to, to the advent of that? And is it overrated or underrated?
1: Both. (laughs) yeah i think it's a it's a good question first of all the cryptographic protocols that lie behind blockchain are incredibly useful and we're going to see more and more utilization of those protocols things like zero knowledge proofs or public signature private signature uh all these things because to uh write some of the kind of contracts that I was describing, it's often very helpful to have uh, an authoritative identification of the parties and the circumstances and so on. So some of the things that's going on with the uh, Ethereum, for example, are about smart contracts and can we improve that in a way that uh, allows for more efficient transactions. So right now we're in a uh, period of, of experimentation where people are exploring all these new toys and these new capabilities, and it's a bit Chaotic as those periods tend to be, whether Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever uh, wins out in the uh, in the end, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a horse race. But we will be seeing cryptographic protocols showing up in more and more uh, of our daily lives, and generally, that's going to enable much more powerful coordination uh, in
0: private sector and public sector. So one of the big uh- I guess sexy things that, you know, where people love to talk about today is artificial intelligence. And I remember, uh, I mean, I, I wrote my um, undergraduate thesis on feed neural networks back in the early 2000s. And uh, all of my professors had no idea, no idea what an artificial neural network was at the time, and so I had to do a lot of education uh, internally. And now it seems uh, like, I mean, it, it, that it's, 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 all, it's almost com- common knowledge. Uh, I mean, Artificial Neural Network showed up in the HBO show Silicon Valley. Um, it is driving a lot of research that's going on at NASA, and NSF, and some of the other government entities that we've talked about today. Uh, where's that going? Where's artificial intelligence going uh, generally Uh, Do you think that uh, we will max that out in the near future, or do you think that it will lead to additional breakthroughs that aren't uh, currently in front of us? So
1: this is a very exciting time for artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, in general, and one very important phenomenon is the uh, rise in cloud computing. So you can go to Google, you can go to Microsoft, you can go to Amazon, get this tremendous computing capability to manipulate large amounts of data and to apply artificial intelligence techniques like the deep neural network and so on to do this. Anybody can do this. Things that that were uh, highly expensive and only available to, uh, to highly sophisticated and trained scientists uh, a decade ago or even five years ago are now available to anybody who wants to to do it. We had a story at Google about a young uh, PhD student in computer science went home to visit his parents in Japan that grew cucumbers and they were laboriously sorting these cucumbers by size and uh, shape and he said, well, we can build a neural network to do that so now his family's cucumber form is using uh, artificial intelligence in the hinterlands of Japan and that's just one story there are many stories like that
0: so about ten years ago, Google did a study where they found that the color yellow was the best uh, color to, to to draw attention to something. Yeah. And I have a pair of yellow glasses. Yeah. Uh, and when I bought them, I didn't necessarily think that, you know, uh, that, well, I didn't I, I, I didn't buy them to draw attention to myself. But I've noticed in wearing them that they that they that they end up drawing a tremendous amount of attention. Is yellow still the best color to? <laughs> Draw attention to something, or 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 or, ha- or has there been new data? Yeah, that's
1: a great question. I have to say, I was on that team that worked on that project. That was the ads quality team, and we experimented with I think thirty or forty different backgrounds for the uh, for the ads, because if you look at Google and lots of Silicon Valley businesses in general, the decision often comes down do we resolve this question by experimentation or do we resolve this question by a hippo? And you say, what's a hippo? Well, the hippo is the highest paid person's opinion. And it is very important to recognize when a problem has to be solved by a hippo and when the problem can be solved by an experimentation. And if the executives are sufficiently well-educated, as ours were, they pretty soon decide, we're not going to... Resolve that by debate or discussion. Go run an experiment. Let me know what the best background color is for the ad. And
0: that's how we try to do things. So, um, so economists uh, are increasingly being recruited by tech companies. Uh, uh, why economists? And wh- what do you think that economists bring that other professions don't?
1: So what happens is the tech companies have a lot of data. They want to analyze that data. You can do that by hiring uh, statisticians, machine learning, operations research, and economists, particularly econometricians, I have to say, uh, because econometricians are pretty skilled at working with data. And in comparison with the other groups, they also understand the commercial side better, let's say. Now... Of course, you take it to statistician, and they come in, and they're doing analysis for you. They'll figure out what the business issues are as well, but the economists kind of hit the ground running in terms of that uh, dimension. So we have the analytic skills, and we have the knowledge about uh, how the economy and businesses work, and that makes them valuable.
2: I have a final question for you from, from me. <clears throat> when you look at the, the universe of, of problems out there, let's divide them into two. There are those problems that can be solved by government through public policy, and there are those problems that can't be solved by government through public policy. And too often we conflate the two. I'm curious, um, for you, it can be an economics problem or whatever. What's the biggest problem that we have out there that cannot be solved by public policy? What's the biggest problem out there that can be solved by public policy?
1: Well... It's a tough issue, but I'll talk about a couple big things that are going on in which I think government and private sector both have a role. One is the uh, aging population that I mentioned earlier, where, of course, not only as people age, they uh, are not working anymore, not in the labor force, and they get more costly as they age. So it's going to be a real burden, I think, on the future of coming up with health care uh, provision that's going to be um, both effective and uh, available to people. So there, of course, there's clearly a role for the private sector. There's clearly a role for the public sector. There's going to have to be some negotiation over who does what. And, of course, as you know, it's a very controversial issue, but it's an issue we, we just have to face. We can't dodge it. Another issue of the same general uh, sort is education, because as... As technology becomes available, there's going to be more and more of a need for people to be able to acquire skills, not just at the beginning of their life, but all through their life. And on that last point, I'll give you an interesting fact from uh, Google. Every day, there are a billion views of how-to videos on YouTube. And those are how to fix your screen door, how to solve a quadratic equation, how to bake a souffle, how to play the piano, on and on and on. I'm sure that you've used these, and I'm sure our listeners have used some of these videos uh, themselves. And if you think about it, that's unique in human history, that we have this huge amount of educational and training material available to anybody in the world on demand, essentially for free. It's part of the educational infrastructure in the U.S. and in the world as a whole and we just haven't appreciated sufficiently, I think, what it can do. So when you have this kind of continuous education and learning available, basically through the private sector, basically through individuals who are volunteering this or offering their services or uh, give you uh, want, want to enroll you in a course, it's a fantastic, fantastic service. So I think we're going to see uh, a changes in education to make it more useful to people on a lifetime basis. And the billion videos downloaded from YouTube, we hope those
0: will play a role in that. Hal, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, Thanks for coming by, and we hope you come back soon. All right. Good. Thanks for tuning in to Liberty and Justice for All with Jack and Paul. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher so that others can find us, and look for a new episode every couple of weeks.